Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. Good morning, Chris. Can you please introduce yourself to the audience? Sure, yeah. My name is Chris Fairweather. I'm a PhD candidate in the School of Labor Studies at McMaster University. Um, And my research is about nationalism and internationalism in the Canadian labor movement. And you're also involved in the labor movement, isn't that right? Yeah, I've been a union activist for a long time. I used to be a uniform member many years ago before grad school, and I was a shop steward and, you know, as as active in that union as I was able to be. And uh, I've been a a very active QP member in my time as as a graduate student and teaching assistant. And for the last year, I've had the very difficult privilege of leading my coworkers as president of the QP local at McMaster. A difficult task. Um, it's not a very welcoming climate for labor right now. I do appreciate you taking the time to come and discuss this issue of nationalism with us. I keep telling Santiago, like, we need to do an episode on nationalism. Uh, we've, you know, when we talk about the convoy or whatever word anybody has for it now, we hint at it, but we've not really gotten into it because it it deserves its own hour at the very least. There's just so much to unpack. So I appreciate having an academic and an activist on to help us kind of chew through this. I'll just open with a warning and I I let you know as well, like I'm a staunch anti-nationalist and I don't think I always was. No, I I certainly wasn't always. Um, And there's still moments where, you know, the Canadian men are playing soccer and I am super emotional about it and it drives me nuts. Um, But because, you know, I'm kind of trying to suppress it at the same time. But I want to get into this in this episode. We'd like to cover a lot when it comes to nationalism, particularly its impact on the working class as a movement. Um, But I think we'll probably delve into a couple of the other issues nationalism brings up, right? So I'm just going to share something with you. I know I'm kind of dominating the beginning of the conversation here, but I I googled Canadian nationalism because I wanted to see what came up. Not because that's where I'm starting from, don't worry. <laughs> okay. Okay. And so the Canadian Encyclopedia, for example, it starts off by giving us a very clear definition of nationalism. And some of the words are key here. Nationalism is the doctrine or practice of promoting the collective interest of a national community or state above those of individuals, regions, or other nations, right? Doctrine, practice, promoting. Those are very active words. But then as you go on, I'm not going to bore y'all with the encyclopedia version, but you go on to the Canadian history of their own version of nationalism that they imply is void of any racist undertones. Um, And it's very organic. It is a phenomenon. It's found in art and on the battlefields, right? Um, That we somehow have very intimate knowledge of these battles and how they formed our national identity, right? Vimy Ridge is, is the classic example. 
it's like a real disconnect even on this. This is all in the same web page in the encyclopedia. And one of the things Santiago said to me this morning was, it's so unquestioned how we learn about Canadian nationalism. Like we don't call it that, right? What's your take on that encyclopedia entry? Like, um, I mean, the first part sounds good. This, the, the, the rest of what you said doesn't sound so good. I mean, I think, um, I think one of the interesting things is probably the fact that Canadian national identity is in a lot of ways less organic than, you know, what you'd see in other parts of the world. Um, and certainly, certainly it's less organic than the kinds of nationalism that you see in national liberation movements and in places in the world where people are, you know, sort of actively oppressed by a colonizing force or, you know, outside imperialist force. I think uh, there's been a bit of an attempt or, or tendency in parts of the Canadian left and, and certainly in the labor movement to to try to cast Canada in in the role of like an oppressed people. <laughs> and certainly like our economy and our politics and our culture are dominated by American politics and economics and culture. And, you know, you talked about the convoy and we can have a, a discussion about the links between the populism we see in Canada and uh, the obvious influences from the United States. Um, but Canada is not an oppressed nation. Canada is a junior partner in American imperialism. Canada is a settler colonial state. I think that when a lot of people close their eyes and think about what Canada is, they picture Mounties and they picture beavers and they picture maple syrup and they picture all the hokey stuff. They picture Tim Horton. Um, and they picture white people. And I, I think, I think that's important. I think, um, as much as, as the Canadian identity is also like a thing that's in flux because it's so inorganic, it's sort of deliberately being constructed and it's contested. And, um, you know, there, we're obviously living through a moment where more liberal forces in society are trying to construct the Canadian identity as very multicultural, multinational, um, you know, but there there are still many people in our society who who think about the old stock Canadian, right? Um, and there's there are a lot of people, especially today. I was just reading a thing in the the Windsor Star that you know people are very concerned about refugees and uh, and migrants, especially crossing the border irregularly at Roxham Road and things like that. And um, yeah, I mean, so I think I think from the way in which the Canadian state is a settler colonial project to the, to the way that we express our anxieties about immigrants. I think that, I think that the whiteness of Canada in many people's minds is kind of difficult to ignore. I mean, you have to be deliberately trying to ignore it, I think. Well, it is very deliberate, isn't it? Like the Canadian encyclopedia essentially explicitly states that there is a European version of nationalism that is born through racial superiority and and uh, it doesn't mention statescraft at all. And I did kind of want to talk about that because when you say it isn't organic, that means it is produced by human hands and minds. Um, it, and for a certain purpose. I, that was one of the biggest eye openers for me when I took political science was learning the formation of the nation state and the statescraft that goes into shaping that image of Canadian, of an American, 
And it's funny, I think quite often our image is in contrast to the United States, right? So obviously they have to play that um, villain role because a lot of our identity is based on how we are better than them in certain aspects. Better than Americanism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sometimes we're asked to be grateful, right? Just because we're not that. Um, But (laughs) we don't learn about statescraft. We don't learn that we're taught to embrace this nationalism unquestionably, right? This, this is done to children early. I asked my little one, you know, we're talking senior kindergarten. Why did they make you stand for the anthem? Did they tell you? He's like, no. I go, nothing. No, but we have to take our hat off too. I'm like, okay, but did they explain that to you at all? Like the significance or why? Nope, just you'll get in trouble if you don't. And I'm like, well, you know, you you tell them your mama says you don't have to sit for nothing or you don't have to stand for anything, especially if they can't explain it to you why, right? And um, I'm like, but don't do that if it makes you feel uncomfortable because it's not really a comfortable thing to do. It's It's something that's absorbed unquestionably. Why? Why don't we question that? <laughs> I don't know. Your 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 guess is as Chris. good as mine. I mean, I think it's it's something that's like it's just very easy to absorb. And I think that when people are challenged about um why, like if if someone comes up to you and they say that Canada's the greatest country to ever exist. And there are a lot of people who who just think that sort of unreflexively, right? Without even uh, a moment of 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 thought about it. If you challenge them on on why they think that is the case, you know that you you get public health care, you get I don't know cottage country, you get the natural environment. People will tell you things about how accepting we are, how how tolerant a society we are, how often um, we say sorry, how often how 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 polite and deferent we are. And what's interesting is like the people who are beating the drums of nationalism the loudest and certainly like the populists and and folks on the far right are the ones who are putting all of those things under strain right putting the public healthcare system under strain putting our putting our putting our our shared willingness to embrace newcomers under strain uh putting certainly putting the natural environment under strain um and so you know i think it's i think that's an interesting point to to tug at a little bit um, that like so many of the things that make us feel like Canada is a good place for good reason, because they're good things. Um, once we start thinking about those things and valuing them in this abstract formulation of like the national identity or the nation state, all of those things that we care so much about go right out the window. And I think the reason for that is, is exactly what you're gesturing to, which is that, you know, if we try to see society as a state, we take a bourgeois lens and what defending the nation state ends up meaning is defending Gail and Weston and defending the Rogers family and, uh, and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, and that's well, one they of would the, probably be listed as top Canadians, right? If we were to make a list of great Canadians of all time, for sure, it would be filled with capital. Yeah. Well, and there at, at the end of the day, like when you talk about statecraft and you talk about international relations and things like that, there's this tendency to sort of see a state as this like monolith 
or to see a national community as a monolith and that like the Canadian government just does what it does on the global stage to defend Canadian interests, just sort of broadly painted. But like my interests are not the same as Galen Weston's. In fact, I would argue that my interests are completely the opposite of his because his interests are apparently fixing bread prices and like <laughs> gouging us uh, at I a time when we're already being gouged everywhere else. And I obviously have an interest in not being gouged when I go to the grocery store. Um, you know, but that's that's the that's the reality of the way that a nation state actually operates in a system of global capitalism is that, you know, it's the interests of the ruling class that that ultimately decide the direction of the country. And that's why I think maybe as a segue, <laughs> that's like the thing that is the most dangerous about the labor movement embracing nationalism and certainly embracing nationalism in a way that's like very uncritical, that is often completely devoid of nuance because at the end of the day, you end up becoming a your own sort of like a junior partner in whatever the interests are that the nation state is advancing, which are always the interests the of class. capital. Right? Okay. I find it interesting how all of this interacts with both how we perceive Canada in relation to the rest of the world and how the rest of the world perceives Canada, right? And... One thing that has become very apparent to me is that Canadians don't really know what's happening anywhere else. Um, we don't. We think that we're doing very well because we look at the United States and we say, as long as we're doing better than them, then we're doing okay. And likewise, the rest of the world looks at Canada and says they're better than the United States, so they must be a good place. When neither of those things are particularly true at all, and we hor- and that's holding ourselves to an incredibly low standard. And and I was thinking, I don't know why this brought up an old documentary I watched, but it was probably was statecraft. Rem- no, I was remembering <laughs> Where to Invade Next by Michael Moore, where you know he goes around to like different European countries and is looking at like specific policies that they do there that is different and i was thinking about how like none of those really applied to canada whatsoever and like part of the message of the whole thing was that they were all one through protesting right and this reminds me of like some videos i was watching recently i think it was i think it was noam chomsky uh who was talking and it might have also been richard wolf and i i don't i don't remember who it was but the point was they were talking about how because like part of this idea of nationalism is this idea of loving your country right but how they were saying that like no like first of all you don't love countries you love people but second of all if you were to really love your love your country quote unquote like that means that you're going to fight to fix the things that are wrong with it and stand up against the injustices within it and stand up for the people within it and that seems to be something that's completely disconnected from people who like are more on the nationalist side in Canada right like when you complain about things that are wrong then you're a bad Canadian it's wrong to complain it's wrong to fight for things that are unjust things have to stay the way they are if you change them it's no longer Canadian which is a really like odd thing to say like there's not really like i don't really see the logic there at all you know i'm gonna chime in here because i think inherently nationalism is 
for an outward comparison. It isn't to be introspective. It is a comparing to others. It's an othering, right? It's an us and them. And so it it doesn't have you look inward purposely, right? It typically points you outward with this vision already of what is inside, an unquestioning vision that, you know, when you challenge it, you are not very popular. Um, you know, Santiago brought up Remembrance Day and <laughs> the sensitivities, I guess, is the best way to put it around that particular holiday. And I find it's often anti-nationalists that feel very uncomfortable with the red poppy and the propaganda that surrounds it, which is like another side note I just wanted to drop. Like we talk about propaganda from other nation states all the time. China and Russia are obviously the most obvious, um, but American propaganda, we kind of recognize it. But it seems like nobody seems to understand that every nation state, um, every single one, uh, good or bad, even if you, you, you know, there is value in, we, we can talk about positive nationalism. You brought it up earlier, but even those, it's, it's still crafted to a degree, right? And I think that, yeah, the labor movement is certainly not immune to it, Chris. Um, it permeates the left. And we know that, that labor unions aren't entirely full of progressives, right? It's just a a cross-section of, of society. We'd like to picture them as all, you know, comrades in arms, figuratively. Uh, but how is it holding the labor movement back in particular? You know, you, you hinted at that, but you didn't get to develop on it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I would probably sketch out, I don't know, two or three ways at least that that nationalism is holding back the labor movement. If you, I mean... It depends on what you see the goal as the labor movement of the labor movement as being, right? Um, what is if, it? Well, what is it then? If the goal is just to like, kind of like advance the bread and butter issues without kind of focusing on trying to make society better, um, and certainly if 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 your goal is if your goal is revolutionary, then certainly there's nothing revolutionary about labor nationalism. Um, but even in terms of like trying to defend good jobs i mean i think this is the thing that gets spoken about the most is just that like we need to we need to boycott mexican vehicles because that's where the jobs are going and so we need to put pressure on the automakers to put more jobs here and it's like that hasn't worked though that's the strategy that you've been using for like 40 years and it hasn't it's accomplished very little but also there's tons of auto jobs all across the province that are not unionized and that I mean, that ought to be the focus, right? Um, you know, rather than trying to sort of scramble to defend the thing that you already have, if, you, if your organizing strategy is strong enough uh, and resilient enough that you're able to make all jobs good jobs, then you don't have to worry about keeping good jobs in Canada, right? And I think that in some ways it's like <laughs> nationalism. I think sometimes nationalism is a bit of a way to kind of like paper over weaknesses elsewhere in our organizing strategy or, uh, or, you know, to distract. And, and certainly you, what you see a lot in those cases is like pointing the finger at the employer. And I think a lot of the unions that practice this stuff the most are like, they're very careful 
to make sure and and have been for decades to make sure that like what they're saying out loud is we're not against the workers in these other countries we're against the employers exploiting us and exploiting them but at the end of the day if your framework and your strategy never moves beyond the sort of narrow competing with one another over a limited number of jobs all you're doing is reinforcing the underlying competitive forces, right? You're just trying to make yourself more competitive by waving the flag and trying to use that to put some leverage on people. But so I think, I think there's that way that nationalism is, is kind of holding the labor movement back. I mean, I think nationalism in the labor movement is obscuring class. I don't think that it helps us understand class any better. I think it makes it more difficult to see. Um, I think that you see a lot of class collaboration in unions under the sort of rubric of of nationalism like it's you know we want to we want to prop up and support canadian employers we want to defend the interests of uh of canadian employers vis-a-vis competition from elsewhere um you know during the 2008 financial crisis the auto workers in ontario had their collective agreements reopened uh twice so they negotiated three agreements um because the collective agreements in the united states were sort of forced open and the employers and the government used the the need for some bailout money the apparent need anyway for some bailout money for gm as a as an excuse to open up contracts and and extract substantial concessions from auto workers and the leadership really publicly took the position that like the most important thing to do in that situation was to keep the employer from out of bankruptcy to make sure that the employer could stay in business in because in Canada and in the United States, right. To make sure that GM doesn't go under, um, because people see their interests as tied to their employer. Um, and you know, it's all about keeping those good jobs in Canada and keeping, uh, Canadian auto plants open. Um, and like, there's a certain intuitive logic there. Like no one wants to lose their job, but I think the other thing that people who work in those plants will tell you, if you talk to them is that they're not good jobs. They're, they're, they suck. They're hard. (laughs) They're physically demanding, especially people who've been working in those plants for decades. Like they've just destroyed their bodies like no one is no one is fighting to keep that job in Canada. People are fighting for their livelihoods. And that means we have to have a deeper conversation about the political economy in this country. Um, because people's ability to survive shouldn't be tied to a job is probably a conversation we eventually need to have. But so that's another huge problem with nationalism in the labor movement. And then obviously it makes space inside the union for other expressions of nationalism that are totally contrary to what the labor movement stands for and is attempting, right? We're trying to build a labor movement in this country that's anti-racist, right? A lot of unions are putting a lot of work into trying to be good allies, accomplices, whatever you want to call it, with indigenous people. How does how does taking up the cause of the, the nation state that is crushing indigenous people how does how is that conducive to being a good ally or a good accomplice with the people who are being crushed? And when you make everything that you do about nationality instead of about class, then you leave you leave yourself open 
to bad actors coming into the union and being like, yeah, well, we need to defend Canada from all of these immigrants or we need to defend Canada from, you know, the Mexican people who are taking our jobs or or whatever the tired sort of trope is that people are going to to trot out. And so, you know, make space for racism and xenophobia in the labor movement to seep in when we're trying so hard to keep it out. It leads to class collaboration. It makes class harder to see. And it makes it way, way harder to pivot in the way that we need to right now in this moment to international solidarity, right? To building cooperative, productive, meaningful relationships with workers in the global south, right? We need to be lifting everybody up. We don't need to be, you know, taking pot shots at each other and undermining each other and seeing each other as competition. And I would say that like in this moment of, 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 I don't know, globalization or regionalism or like the, you know, the, the explosion of the multinational corporation, um, you know, as like the main actor on the world stage, like workers in, in every country need to be coming together. This is the whole point of a union is that left to its own devices, the bosses will divide and conquer. They'll pit us against one another. And if we all are just acting individually on our own, we're screwed. We have absolutely no power. But if we come together, if we overcome that, that attempt by employers to divide us, then, you know, we can build some power. And that's what the labor movement has always done. And what is a border, if not like a very meaningful attempt to divide people, you know, and I think also like, Bosses have used geography within one jurisdiction <laughs> to whipsaw workers, to, to crush unions. You know, you move a plant from Windsor to Oakville to get away from the union in the 40s, right? It's, it's, all, it's all just a very natural part of how capitalism functions and falling for the logic of like the national border is somehow meaningful and different. Um you know, has really put us on the back foot. For sure. I think that brings up like a whole other question of the origin of the state. We don't often, especially Canada's origin story, it's very beautiful, <laughs> right? Like we, it's um, so peaceful in comparison again to the neighbors uh, to the South. And that's why we are great people because we didn't fight for what we, you know, we didn't have to fight for Canada. Uh, that's the story essentially that I was told in high school. Um, but you mentioned the creation of borders, but also the creation of the nation state. Like, I, I don't think people understand that its purpose was logistical in nature, but to control the masses, you know, to be able to tax clearly, to delineate power clearly, um, to a degree it led to peace, you know, um, in some circumstances, but in the end, it was just to carve up the masses into fiefdoms for the wealthy. And it continues to maintain this role, but now completely invisible to us. It, 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 it does feel organic if you go through the education system and, and don't end up in a poli-sci class <laughs> or some sort of history class that takes a, a little bit of a more deeper look. Santiago, you yeah. didn't grow up here. Well, you did, but uh, yeah. you have a unique experience in that 
you maybe feel the pull of two nation states. Three, really. Three. I don't understand that. <laughs> Do you? From my perspective, not that I don't get how you can't just pick one, um, but mean, like, what's that like? Because like, I mean, especially what if they play each other? Interesting in- one. <laughs> that, that's a bit of an interesting one in Canada uh, because you know, so like I'm I'm originally from Colombia, uh, but I'm Colombo Libanese, so Colombian Lebanese, and you know, like actually now that now that you mention Lana and I think about it, you know, like as a kid, like I grew up in an Italian neighborhood, right? And and it used to be that, like, I was different because I'm not, like, Italian, right? And and it used to be that, like, I, I guess I would get kind of competitive about that. Be like, oh, yeah, I fucking hate Italy. Fuck the Italian soccer team, yada, yada, you know? Like, all, like you start getting into these things. And so it being that I started, like, kind of, like, embracing all things Colombian as kind of, like, a way, like, to, like, have my own identity. And then as I grew up and became more anti-nationalist, I started being like, okay, like, what really what really was the point of that i guess like it, it, it was it's just funny how like we we use things to like separate ourselves from other people and then it ended up being like like over time like now like for example like my favorite food is italian food but like i <laughs> i used to like <laughs> you know like i used to like, it's very like, defensive about Itali- it's bolognese yeah, like, no not now i love italian but you know what i mean like it's like you what the the thing that happens when you start putting up those walls is you start saying these things are not acceptable and certain things are acceptable. I can do certain things. I can't do other things, you know? And then when you let go of it, it's like, oh, I don't I don't have to. I can, like, allow myself to experience all of these different things. And you can uh, – oh, but, like, that's – looking at that not through, like, a material lens but through more of, like, you know, a political lens, it's also, like, ideas. We do that with ideas, Right. Things that are Canadian values are okay, but things that come from other places in the world, we don't entertain in the same way because we don't allow ourselves to. And that's really what, like, if I was to break down what this all comes back to, it comes back to just stopping yourself from allowing yourself to be an open and free thinker, right? And, and like, one of the underlying things about nationalism is is this sense of pride, right? And... Pride can be a very dangerous thing when you don't, I think in most cases, not all cases, but when you start celebrating something and then it becomes always a threat whenever you have to force yourself to like analyze the things that are wrong with it, you know? Like, for example, our healthcare is an excellent example of that, right? We celebrate that we have this universal healthcare system in Canada and Reality is it's one of the weakest universal healthcare systems in the world, right? Like you compare it to a lot of the universal healthcare in in in, in European countries, ours is a lot less universal, you know, dental care, eye care, all it goes far beyond that. But the point being that it's not actually something to celebrate the way we do. And I think a lot of the hesitancy to do anything better is the fact that we were resting on our laurels about that right and so it's also important to like think about when we're talking about nationalism the fact that like nationalism is one category of a certain mentality but it happens in all things you know it happens when when people don't question the parties 
that they belong to or you know or, or I feel or, like it like, always comes back to that we're like man I see a lot of parallels but it, but it does right it does. Like, no I'm not and, and it's on the micro levels too you know like the the the, the, the like I live in Toronto you know like the 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 distinct like which neighborhoods and then you know regionalism like some people, regionalism and then like there's always the isms that like there there's bigger there's smaller there's everything but the point is is that mentality is what unites that throughout whichever way it appears you know whether or not it's a party or a city or a province or a country or a continent or a skin color or religion or what whatever it is you know it's the separating of yourselves from that around you anyways that's my spiel (laughs) when you you mentioned using your colombian identity as a marker you know and almost railing against the italian culture just to be able to distinguish yourself right that made me think of what chris brought up much earlier when talking about the need for certain nations to assert themselves, you know, that are still under or very oppressive rule, you know, indigenous nations come to mind, Palestinians come to mind. And when we talk about nationalism in the Canadian sense and it being crafted and manipulative, but also very damaging, I think we need to spend time noting that there are positive needs to nationalism in certain, and I have trouble criticizing that type of nationalism because of the circumstances. So Chris, you want to like hit on that a little bit? You you did. I know you got an opinion. Well, it's like, it's the thorniest part. It's the thorniest part of studying this stuff. And, and like almost every time I go anywhere, and talk about the problem of nationalism in the labor movement, the very first question is always, well, okay, smart guy, what do you think about Palestinian nationalism then? Right? Like, obviously, you don't have a problem with all nationalism. And I think, like, there's two things to say. The first thing is, um, like, the nationalism of the oppressed is obviously different from the nationalism of the oppressor. Right? And, like, Maybe the analogy that I would use is 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 pride. Like we, you've mentioned, pride. I was just thinking that, and I would and I would say like <laughs> queer people. Oh no, we're talking proud. about that kind of pride. I wanted to make sure we <laughs> yeah. were demonizing pride the first time. Okay, here we no, go. No, no, no. Like okay. like queer people being proud of who they are is revolutionary. It's transgressive, and it's a big fuck you to people who want them to be ashamed of who they are. And to so pride, them. pride is a very liberating thing when people are are expressing their pride in in belonging to an oppressed community and that's true everywhere right like it's the same for for black people right black power and white power are not the same thing for very (laughs) obvious reasons right and there's no need for straight pride being proud of being straight is fucking stupid right i i think that pride is either for accomplishments or it's to liberate yourself from shame. And if no one's trying to make you feel ashamed of something and you haven't accomplished anything, then your pride is stupid at best uh, and usually also oppressive, right? And therefore dangerous. And I would say that in in many of the same ways, um, national pride 
uh, can function like that. Um, and so Palestinians being proud of their national identity and coming together and using it as a way to organize against colonialism and against apartheid um, is a liberating thing. And that's very, very different to Canadian nationalism, which, as I was saying before, I think in the 70s, especially with the waffle and the sort of left nationalist movement in this country, you know, people people took the position that like Canada is an oppressed nation and that and that, you know, like Canadian nationalism is like a liberating thing, therefore, without ever paying any mind to the active role that Canadian the Canadian state uh, played then and continues to play now as a junior partner in American imperialism, but also inside our own borders, that the Canadian national identity has been used even inside the labor movement to oppress Quebec, right? Um, nationalists in the Canadian labor movement opposed Quebec sovereignty on the grounds that we need to defend Canadian sovereignty so that we can defend ourselves against the United States, right? And people would certainly make the same arguments about indigenous people, indigenous nations in this country who are they, are they not entitled to sovereignty? Because keeping keeping them as part of the Canadian state is necessary to Canadian sovereignty. Um, we occupy an admittedly complicated position in the global sort of pecking order, right? Um, and it, I think, has been that that fact has been used to kind of justify expressions of nationalism that that were mostly harmful by focusing on like very minor ways in which they may have been helpful. Because it is true that nationalism was maybe a motive force or certainly a justification for like a lot of militancy in the labor movement in the 70s and 80s and even even into the to the very late 1990s um, that you had people, you know, occupying closing plants and flying Canadian flags and, and sort of, um, you know, engaging in very militant direct action against multinational capital. And using the Canadian identity as a way to organize and mobilize community support for that. And obviously that's very different <laughs> to like the nationalism of like we need to defend the borders from immigrants. But at the end of the day, it's also like a little bit of a distinction without a difference. If what it means is that you end up letting in the bad kind because you haven't you haven't used the quote unquote good kind in, in a way that is sufficiently like nuanced or critical. And also I think like, yeah, where it's been relevant, nationalism in the labor movement has maybe played a part in catalyzing militancy. But like there were also militant actions all the time in in the labor movement in those decades where national identity had nothing to do with it. Um, Canadian auto worker members occupied their um, – the Molson plant in Barrie because it was going to close and they wanted the right to follow their jobs to the Molson plant in Etobicoke, <laughs> like an hour away. There's no, you know, there was no, oh, defend good Canadian jobs from this evil American employer to lean on because it was like maybe the most Canadian employer and it was an hour down the highway, right? But still they managed to engage in this very militant direct action uh, to try to win the right to keep their jobs. And so, you know, people are fighting to defend their livelihoods. They're not defending, 
They're not fighting to defend Canada. And I think that like the attempt to frame it that way is just meant to kind of cut across political differences to try to build as much support as possible. Right. And to try to get people, you know, your neighbor who maybe doesn't actually give a shit about you, doesn't give a shit about your job, but presumably gives a shit about Canada. (laughs) Right. You can be like, well, this is an attack on all of us. And so you need to defend, you need to help me and my friends defend our jobs at Johnson like controls a selling feature or right? Hodel bumper or whatever. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's, um, you know, and I think, I think it's also true that like, no matter where a nation is in this sort of like global pecking order of like imperialism, as soon as your nationalism does win the day and you get your sovereignty, that national identity is going to be used to paper over class conflict. And it's not any, it's not any different. No, that's the thorniness there as well that you talked about, right? Like, it's good for now. Um, Sure. And, like, there are anti-nationalist elements in the struggle for Palestinian sovereignty. There are are anti-nationalists in the global south who fight back against American imperialism, but also don't support the jingoism of, like, rallying around their own national identity. I mean... You talked about that identity being contested and... uh, And now I'm seeing militant protests with flags in my mind. And you know where I'm going with this. (laughs) Um, Has the convoy reshaped nationalism in a way? Just let me kind of pull this out in in my ADHD way. In a way, I feel like they've lifted the veil off of nationalism because now more people cringe when they see a ginormous Canadian flag on the back of a pickup truck. And I think that's a good thing, right? I think it should feel uncomfortable when we see ourselves just kind of unquestionably following, like singing a song together. It is very cult-like if you really step back and look at it, especially when you've decided not to and you're the one person sitting and everyone else is like, just cannot understand that at all. Like it, it, it does things, but now I think between like the Colin Kaepernick kneeling during an anthem and the, the pushback there, it's like, it's a hard line now, right? The flag means this or you're out, you know? Um, the, the anthem is this. Don't even change the, the language at all. Uh, there's, there's pushback. And so this identity that used to be, well, it's, it's shifted, right? It was very white. And then we tried to pretend that we were very multicultural, but now I feel like, it's really openly and explicitly being challenged again to for, to narrow that definition down to a very specific type of Canadian that drives a very specific kind of truck with a flag and a fuck you Trudeau bumper sticker. And you know what I mean? And because they've adopted freedom also as their slogan too, right? And so that has real nationalist tones to it. And so, yeah, on one hand, I feel like they are doing awful things with Canadian values, even though there are no Canadian values. So like, it would be good if we just didn't have that, but what they're doing is worse. But also for people who are paying attention, it has that flip side where they've cracked that can open on nationalism, where we can actually now talk about what it means to fly that flag in someone's face. 
you know, and, and that it sets to stand you apart from other people, namely folks who are not Canadian, a real racist kind of expression now. So I don't know, at one point I thank them for like allowing more folks to look at the flag and the nation state in a different way, but it is terrifying the way that they are contesting Canadian values, but also the way the liberals are doing it is just as bad for me because it speaks to that indigenous sovereignty you talked about earlier, where they, in their reconciliation mode, like I'm rolling my eyes for people who can't see, like they are adopting indigenous culture and nation indigenous nations into Canadian identity in a really superficial way, right? In the same way we talk about that we work our healthcare into our identity but don't protect it. I think it's it's a it's a maneuver against indigenous sovereignty, not of reconciliation, because that would be matched by other actions, right? That said you you do truly see them as Canadian and value them as much as you do your white Canadian. That means their water, their education, their housing and all of that, but they don't. But they're working that into the imagery and what we put out there. And that speaks to, you know, keeping Quebec in Quebec or keeping indigenous nations from getting land back. Do you have any comment on <laughs> all of that dumb? <laughs> Santiago's <laughs> laughing he's like I don't even know where to start yeah I mean I feel like you're right I, I, I mean I think it's true that like for kind of liberals and, and maybe maybe even kind of social democrats or like left liberals even like moderate conservatives probably like a lot of what happened in the occupation of Ottawa <laughs> it was probably very uh, very alarming and I think that the the risk is that people will look at it and say, that's not Canada. These people don't represent Canada. Um, you know, my Canadian nationalism is, it's Mounties and Beavers and like not getting involved in the Iraq war, even though like low key, we did get involved in the Iraq war. But like, I think, I think that for sure there are more people who are starting to kind of look at like, I think it's true that when people see a big truck drive by with a giant, a giant, an unnecessarily giant Canadian flag hanging off the back of it, I think that people don't don't necessarily see that as innocuous in a way that like people probably would have seen that as fairly innocuous like five or ten years ago. But I also think that like the whole thing. Um, is really an indication that the labor movement and the left more generally has been outflanked on a lot of things. And national identity has played a big part in allowing ourselves to be outflanked on those things. Because I think that like, you know, a lot of what you saw in the, in the convoy and a lot of what you see in sort of right-wing populism in Canada in general is a lot of like conspiracy theory kind of talk about globalists that like, it, it kind of, it gestures to a point that's true and important, but it never quite gets there. Maybe because people don't have the tools to get there. Maybe because people's politics are complicated and like, you know, people bring in their religious values or other traditional values that they grew up with, or, you know, people gravitate towards conservative politics for all sorts of reasons, right? It's not, it's not simply one thing or the other. It's not like you watch one 
YouTube video and, you you know, pulled completely in the opposite direction. But like the anti-globalization movement was our movement. Yeah. Right. Uh, And now you can't even say it because it means something else. Like I was in a debate as a candidate and there was a PPC candidate going on about it. And I was like, that's what do I get? 60 seconds to reply. What do I do? Like you can't, but it, these are catchwords that people understand now, and they have other labels attached to it that you just can't unpack with most people. We don't have the time. God, that's another episode, isn't it? Globalization. Well, yeah, because I mean, I think that like it's not that Canada is under attack by some like shadowy cabal of unknown globalist lizard people or or whatever, right? It's that workers in Canada are under attack by capitalists in Canada and abroad and that workers abroad are under attack by their own capitalist class and by the capitalist class that exists beyond their borders. And like Canada exports a lot of misery in the mining sector. And I think like this is another, this is another example of like the populists are like, Oh, Canada sending all of its all of our money to other countries and this is a problem. And it's like the way that our foreign aid system works is a problem that like a lot of that money is going to prop up regimes in countries where Canada has significant mining interests. Like that's a that's a good point that needs to be like teased at. But like the overall idea that like I don't know liberals are just like giving away our money out of charity or something like it's not going to the places where people need it and it's not getting there in the ways that would help people. Right. Because again, it's the Canadian state operates on the global stage in a way that advances the interests of the Canadian capitalist class. Right. And, you know, so you have to see things through that perspective, but again, that's very complicated. And I, I, I sympathize with your <laughs> your inability to articulate all of that clearly in 60 seconds in a debate with a People's Party candidate. But I think it's it's by making everything about Canada and nationality rather than making things about like a little bit more of a complex analysis of our political economy, we've left the door right open <laughs> to Pierre Poiliev and, and his ilk coming in and picking up that that little thing that we've made important, which is nationality in the labor movement, and then running with it and being like, you know what's a you know what's a threat to Canada? Roxham Road. You know what's a threat to Canada, right? Uh, it's Justin Trudeau sending all of our money to other countries. You know what's a threat to Canada? Da 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 da. Right. I always was aware that like nationalism exists on the left. But I'm really mad now um, (laughs) after you describing it that way because we did leave the door open and we still do because now that I am an anti-nationalist and the lenses are off those rose-colored glasses that Santiago needs to find are, are gone and I just don't get it, you know? Like I... They're still doing it even though they're aware. So the best example I can give is the use of the word Canadians. When politicians are talking and they're talking about policies that will lift up Canadians. And 
I get that they're not talking about foreign policy, but not everybody here is Canadian, right? The policies on transit and healthcare and all of that aren't dependent on your status, but it's that reinforcing even so small or the imagery that we use um, constantly as Canada, 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 Canada. It absolutely has fed into this. Please, Santiago, so I don't rant. I I just remembered a story that so like the very first time I got involved in any sort of political campaigning, um, my very first day canvassing on the very first store that I knocked, oh, no. there was um, this old lady and she saw me and was like, OK, so he's not white and uh, started saying about how immigrants are ruining the country, oh, you know, my God. all that spiel. And I remember like at the time I, I was like very annoyed and I, I was I was saying like, you know that like on average immigrants contribute more to like the gdp than non-immigrants like canada relies on the exploitation of immigrants in order to function as a country no better example than that is also just the example of international students and the exploitation of international students our education system would not be functional without exploiting international students but it's just like that like that blame redirection to like non-Canadian things when when really what Canadian identity is relies on that exploitation. Canada by explo- Canada has like you said Canada has the most mining companies in the uh, around the world. Canada would not function without the exploitation of the natural resources of other countries, without the exploitation of people, of, of temporary foreign workers, of international students. So, like, in, in all of these different ways, the very thing that we celebrate relies on that, but then those very same people get blamed. And it's just such a vicious thing that is so not questioned and it's so frustrating and 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 honestly like it's also such a distraction from like a lot of like the the important things like i keep talking about lately like my thing is about how all of our essential goods and services right now are deteriorating at an alarming rate you know we have horrible horrible food insecurity right now like 37th out of 42 wealthy nations in the world for childhood food insecurity you know 5.5 million canadians are food insecure when you look at people of color um and particularly indigenous communities it's horrible you know our our telecoms we play some of the highest in in the world for internet and for phone right um it's it's on everything like our education is falling apart everything is falling apart yet people are still like celebrating like this nationalist identity and pride and it's like like we're so reluctant to look at what is happening in the rest of the world that we have no idea how far behind we are falling because we just see the America, uh, the United States of America, which is doing so much worse, right? And it's, and like that's the thing about about this nationalist pride is that we're just missing out on like what could be more like nationalist prideful than taking care of the people in the country, you know? We don't do that. Like we don't take care of people who are in Canada. What the hell is there to be prideful about when, like, we're in such a horrible position right now? Like, what the hell are we celebrating? Sorry, I just... Well, come July 1st, I won't be, but that's not new. We're almost, like, kind of running into... I feel like at the 55th (laughs) minute, I always get super, like, 
cynical and like and we always have to try and bring okay, it up good. after that this is good because <laughs> i have a question here on my notes that i you know sometimes i get wrapped up in the discussion i forget to even look at it but you know big question and now i'm even more convinced we can't really control what the convoy does yet right we, we organize in our own communities we talk to our, our friends and family we do what we can but we sure as hell can make influence on what the electoral left and labor movements are doing, right? That's where we are. That's where we're doing our work right now. And how do we start to combat the nationalism that exists in labor unions, which are essentially, again, just a, a cross-section of our communities, right? Just organized in their workplace. And the political parties. Like, how do we start... Because there's so many narratives that we challenge all the time that we think are important to challenge. And I feel like this one kind of just sits there like it's not as important on the left to reshape how we talk. You know, we've done really good in terms of how we recognize each other and understand intersectionality and all of that. But nationalism seems to be that thing on the back burner that we won't challenge head on in our spaces. And what you said earlier leads me to know now that it's a huge detriment not to, right? It's not enough for me to be anti-nationalist and my, my children. Like, we need to make sure that we aren't incorporating that same language and that that same misuse of communications, you know, to shape that Canadian value imagery and and to prioritize Canadians over other people, over other workers, and I love two things that the status for all movement that a lot of folks might have seen over the weekend. They had a national day, and that is to make sure every worker, regardless of their status legally, is given enough status to enjoy the rights that we do, whatever protections we do have that they as well, because currently they don't. Right. We exploit the labor that Santiago was talking about and folks come earn less than minimum wage because they're not Canadian. They don't enjoy labor act at all. Um, healthcare, even though they do have to pay taxes as workers. And one of the reasons that the workers action center and, and migrant workers network was created one out of need, there was a need for this, but also to challenge the nationalist racist sentiment that exists in leftist movements and in the labor unions. Very rarely will organized labor advocate for migrant workers, right? Because they're, that doesn't in the immediate time benefit their own workers, their paid dude members. But this challenge is that it asks us to advocate for workers because they're workers, just because they're workers. And because they're human, you know, and it challenges those nationalist sentiments. So I'd like to see more of that replicated where, you know, international students play a key role in student movements. And that that is highlighted, even if it is less popular and harder to get people on board, because we we do inherently care about Canadians more than other people and people who want to challenge that. What I the example I often give them is if a plane crashes. And we are given the nationalities of the people on board. And it only really matters to us if there were X amount of Canadians on board, right? It, it ceases to even be, a, it, it's only, these are national tragedies, 
that we refer to, um, not international ones. No, no. Uh, and you know this to be true, right? Everyone listening knows this to be true. When massacres happen on particularly the non-white side of our globe, we do not change our profile pictures. We do not um, have a national day of mourning. We don't lower our flags because we don't care as much because they're born on different dirt. That's how I explain it to my kid. They're born on a different piece of dirt than somebody else. And that doesn't make sense to my kid. And so hopefully it stops making sense to a lot of people. But Chris, I mean, how how in other ways can we just start to push back against this very popular nationalist sentiment, not just white nationalism, not just like the far right nationalism that we definitely have to do. But if we're not fighting it on our end, then I think we have no hope fighting it in large scale. Yeah, I mean, I'll leave it. I'll leave it up to you uh, to tell us what needs to be done in terms of uh, in terms of the party. Um, but in terms of the labor movement, I think um, I, I mean, I think you're right. I think internationalism is nationalism's antidote. And I think that decades of nationalism have made organizing around internationalism more difficult. But it's like it's because it's like a festering problem that we have allowed to sort of sit untreated. And so it's going to take more and more of the antidote organizing to sort of overcome that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, we need to build internationalism. And I think that like the thing about internationalism is that it inherently implies a space for national identity and for people to feel connected to a particular uh, to a particular nationality or to a particular culture, you know, like it, it and a level of autonomy. Yeah. Like na nationality isn't inherently nationalistic, right? Like nationalism is taking a national identity and prioritizing it over other people, right? It's politicizing it towards some political project or another. It's not inherently like a consequence of the fact that we come from different places. And I think that like internationalism obviously implies that we're from different nations and that we're coming together to build across that difference. And it doesn't mean obliterating those differences. It, it, it And we all, I think, understand intuitively that it means respecting those differences and appreciating those differences. And, you know, um, in the labor movement, we'll, we'll usually start our, co our conventions with some sort of like land acknowledgement and maybe indigenous people will come and, uh, and uh, you know, perform some sort of ceremony or something like that. And internationalism isn't about like denigrating their ceremonies or denigrating their culture or being like, you shouldn't be a distinct nation. We should all just be one giant amorphous gray blob of people across the globe. Right. And so, you know, I think that like. Well, we don't have to be gray. <laughs> no, I, well, I just mean that like you can organize internationalism. In fact, in order to organize internationalism effectively, you have to carve out space for respecting one another's national identities. And I think that, like, as much as the national identity in Canada is, like, in many ways hokey and in many ways, you know, contested or, or having to be deliberately constructed and contains a lot of terrible things that should be challenged you know, we can, we can still be the people at the hockey rink on Saturday morning with our double double. And it doesn't have to be an oppressive thing, right? It's a weird thing to celebrate, but like, if you want to celebrate that, go nuts. 
I think as long as the organizing that we're doing is about um, not privileging that national identity ahead of others. And I think that like, it's true that the labor movement has gotten much better uh, over the last couple of decades because of the work of, of racialized union members on anti-racist politics. It's, it, it's, it's less acceptable to go into a union space and be like, what about the white people today than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, and certainly it's less acceptable today to go into a union space and be like, what about the men? We're talking about the women. What about the men? Like you'd get booed, <laughs> I think, in, in a lot of union Hopefully. spaces for, for coming in and saying something like that. But like nationality is kind of our blind spot. Where like it is absolutely acceptable to go into a, a union convention and be like, we need to defend Canada from foreign threats. And I think that as much as we have built internationalism into our organizing work, and as much as the labor movement has always been an internationalist endeavor, and so you know, the Canadian auto workers had a very long and proud tradition of internationalism, even after they left the UAW. Um QP does a lot of work with um public sector unions in the Philippines. Um, like the labor movement is still, is still the, the, uh, the infrastructure is there to really build on um, promoting internationalism within the Canadian labor movement. It's just the commitment wanes when people are in crisis. When a plant is closing, all of a sudden internationalism isn't as important. And it's very easy to express internationalism um, with people in Bangladesh when a garment factory collapses. That's very easy because we don't really have any skin in the game, right? It's very easy for, we're not, if we were competing with those garment workers for good unionized garment jobs, it would be more complicated, I think, for people. And that's where the labor movement tends to struggle is once we're in crisis where we feel like we're competing for jobs, we lapse back into the nationalist kind of organizing. But I think that like, it's like every other problem in the labor movement. The only solution is deep organizing. It's having difficult conversations with your coworkers. Union education has to get a lot better in terms of inoculating organizers around this particular issue and training organizers to talk to their coworkers in ways that are not nationalistic, in ways that promote internationalist struggle. Right, doing more work to try to build meaningful connections with workers in other places. Because I think when you bring people into the labor movement and you politicize them in a way that challenges business unionism, in a way that challenges nationalism and racism and, and sexism and uh, transphobia and all the rest of it. I mean, this is kind of the other thing is like we, we have to be fighting on all of these fronts at once. And our organizing currently, just we just don't have the capacity to organize on all of those fronts all at once. We need to put more of our resources into building the capacity to do that at the level of the shop floor. And there needs to be a willingness among trade union leaders to put resources into doing that rather than squirreling everything away for you know, some future giant general strike or something that they also seem to not want to happen. <laughs> but... Yeah, I think I think um, you know if we if we continue to 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 have our labor organizing be mostly around sort of bread and butter issues, 
uh, and to be very sort of reactive instead of proactive. Um, if we continue to treat the members of our unions, as we do in a lot of corners of the labor movement, as like a passive element, to be mobilized when we're in bargaining or to be mobilized when there's some sort of political crisis, but otherwise to just sort of go back to work and do their jobs, um, then it's going to continue to be a problem. And so I think that like, in order to confront nationalism in the labor movement, you know, we, we have to we have to rethink a lot more than just that about how we organize ourselves as workers. Because, yeah, you talk about um, nationalism erasing class lines. I imagine starting there, erasing those national lines to a degree would go a long way because that's one of the struggle we know um, the labor movement has is not being able to mobilize everybody when needed, um, you know, strike pay aside. I mean, in other moments and when it maybe doesn't matter to them <laughs> and uh, it's a lack of working class consciousness that permeates everywhere. Right. But I think for too often we've th thought of those as two separate issues, you know, like we maybe recognize them both as problems in terms of consciousness, uh, but not tied them together so clearly. Uh, Santiago, do you have any last questions for for chris <laughs> like 20 <laughs> just because of uh i do have one uh kind of not so serious last question i guess you could say is that can you be anti-nationalist and still cheer for the canadian national team when it's soccer season like is that okay <laughs> because that's that's something like, I'm incredibly anti-nationalist, but the second the game comes on, you know, oh, boy. Are you going to cheer for <laughs> Canada or against the United States? Oh, I Depends mean, on what's going on. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think, I think, think a lot of that question is just it's between you and your maker. But I think... Um, <laughs> it doesn't feel right, Chris. It doesn't. Not now. Like I, 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 I've, been, I've been studying this question for a long time. I've been thinking about this question for a long time. And, like, I watched the World Juniors over the, over the winter break. And, like, <laughs> when Connor Bedard, Bedard scored that goal against Slovakia, I jumped out of my seat like everybody else did. Um, I think you just have to be reflexive about it. And I think, like, you know... Yeah, you can you can absolutely cheer for your country in the <laughs> in the in the World Cup, and then you know turn around and and tell your coworkers Canada that sucks. They should, yeah, that, that <laughs> overall <laughs> that's going to be my uh, bumper sticker. There's okay. there's probably more to challenge than there is to celebrate, but that is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.